Welcome to Family Chemotherapy, a corner for parents and caretakers fighting and surviving pediatric cancer. I'm your host, Adriana Lewin. Hi, this is Adriana. Welcome back to part two of Coping with the Diagnosis. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about the stages of grief and how they apply to a cancer diagnosis. And we also talked a little bit about seeking therapy and potentially getting medication to help you along this difficult time in your life. We also talked a little bit about the different losses that you may experience when you learn that your child has been diagnosed with pediatric cancer. I want to jump right in to what happens as soon as you get the diagnosis and you're sitting in the doctor's office and they're giving you basically the treatment plan or their recommendations. And to my surprise, we found that a lot of the doctors that we have met with and just discussed my son's treatment plan with, they actually involve your input quite a bit. They really give you the information and they kind of say, here's what I would recommend, but what would you like to do? Which I wasn't really used to because most of the time when you go to the doctor, your mindset is the doctor knows best. They've been through school for, you know, almost a decade, basically learning their trade and they know more than than you do, right? And so you're basically going into these appointments, assuming that they're just going to tell you, here's plan A, plan A, one, two, three, then plan B. But that's not how it goes. You're actually very involved in the process, especially if you have a really good doctor, they will truly involve you in the process, giving you all the information so you can think about the decisions that you want to make and how involved you want to be in that decision-making process with your child's treatment plan. Once you get the diagnosis, deciding on a treatment plan can truly create a lot of tension in terms of you and your spouse because you're having to make some really big life-saving decisions and two parents aren't always going to agree on the exact same treatment plan every single time. Some parents may think that what the doctor says is gospel truth and some parents may question everything and some parents like to know what type of alternative medicines may be out there and maybe one parent will prefer looking into alternative medicine and the other parent is a more traditional patient then you're definitely going to have some conflict and some tension there. I know I've discussed in my blog and some in the podcast that When my younger brother passed away a couple of years ago, um, it was such a, it was such an eye-opening experience for me because I was of the mindset that doctors know best and they should have all the answers. And when my brother was in the hospital, we quickly realized that when they told us that They had absolutely no explanation as to what was happening with him and why. And when he passed away, they couldn't really give us any answers, but there were so many people around us that looked at his case and said, you know, I'm surprised that the doctors didn't do this or they didn't recommend this. And um, there were different things that could have been done, I guess. Um, And those doctors chose not to in a lot of, outsiders seem to have disagreed. And so I became very, um, not that I didn't trust doctors, but I just became very cautious 
and trusting in everything that they say and knowing that each doctor is a specialist in the area that they specialized in and they're not necessarily well versed in other areas that they just haven't really had the education in. And that's not to say that, you know, that makes them a bad doctor. It means that they're excellent in the area that they focused in, but in order to really focus on certain things, you do unfortunately miss out on opportunities of learning in other areas. So I clearly was one of the moms who was looking into all the details, all the million questions that, you know, every parent should pretty much ask and just questioning the doctors. And I am so thankful for the doctors that we have had because I literally take up at least, you know, a good 20, 30 minutes of their time. And at the beginning, it was easily like an hour every time, just me asking question after question and asking them about research papers that I'd come across and different types of treatment plans and alternative medicine and why the doctor has chosen to use one treatment plan and bypass the other one. And my child's oncologists have been truly little walking saints um, because they have been able to tolerate the million questions. It's kind of a joke, actually, when we walk into a clinic every week. Um, I like to tease the doctor and say, oh, yep, you just lost 30 minutes of your, your lunchtime. And uh, we ended up not going to the, the same clinic for a couple of weeks. And during that time, um, we were going to a closer location. And when we decided to go back to our same doctor, because we just absolutely love him, I got back and I said, man, I know as soon as you saw my name on that, on your schedule, you said, great, I have now lost my time for working out. So back to the reality of, you know, discussing with your doctors and being able to trust them and just trust their judgment and knowledge. Um, one of those things that I've found to be very helpful, it really was the support groups online. So my child has rhabdomyosarcoma. And so I got plugged into some really good rhabdo groups. Uh, we call it rhabdo for short. Um, so I got plugged into one of the rhabdo groups and they are amazing. These people, I might not know any of them and my conversations with them may be in passing, but some of us, like we just see each other's names frequently or we, you know, have kids with similar diagnosis and uh, treatment plans. So we, we get to know each other. And in this community, I can ask a million questions like, hey, my doctor's recommending this medication for nausea. Uh, what are your thoughts? What are you guys using? What has been helpful? What hasn't been helpful? I get all of that information through the support group specific to the cancer that my child has. Um, they truly are the lifeline. Like literally during radiation, we had 28 days of radiation. It was Monday through Friday for six weeks. And we had some issues with anesthesia. And so when I started asking questions about, okay, my child is having a hard time with anesthesia. How can I help him wake up less grumpy? <laughs> if, if that's the best word I could really use to describe it. Um, actually, rage would be the best word I could use to describe it because literally he would wake up in a rage. And I guess they call it emergent response um, is the term that they use in, in the anesthesia world. But um 
he started having that during COVID-19 as soon as like lockdown, the shelter in place happened. And unfortunately, we couldn't get our hands on a special drug basically that they use with the anesthesia um, to help with that emergent response. They're supposed to be able to wake up a little more happy. Um, We couldn't get our hands on it because they said that they were stockpiling it for people basically in hospital being treated for COVID-19. So we had to deal with different ways to work around not having that drug and finding out just the timing of how they administer it. And literally every anesthesiologist has their own special technique, I guess, even though technically it's very similar. It's like that, that special finishing touch that makes the difference. And so without the community, I don't know if I would have lasted those last few weeks um, in knowing how much I had to advocate for my child and for the different type of drugs and, you know, literally asking uh, the anesthesiologist, can you try this differently or do that differently? And I'm telling you, these, the doctors that we've had have been truly amazing and truly blessings because they have been so humble to basically appease my requests, right? So going into this, basically, you trust the doctors, but you also can advocate and ask questions and request that they do things differently. Because at the end of the day, it is your child. And they may tell you, you know, maybe that's not that great of an idea. But at the end of the day, if that's what you want them to do, um, they will figure out how to work with you with your requests. So um, when you're going through the diagnosis part and trying to understand what the treatment plan is and what they're recommending. My number one recommendation first would be prayer. You and your spouse to sit together in prayer and discern together what the best treatment plan is for your child. I know some people may not be religious. um, So if prayer isn't your thing, it's just literally sitting down together, discussing it, And I guess going with your intuition, right? If you've looked into your options and actually done the research, I know it's not like you're choosing between something happy and, you know, filled with flowers and an easy path. They're both going to be, or all the options you're going to have are going to be really, really difficult and hard choices that you're having to make because none of them sound great. None of them are the ideal because ideally your child wouldn't have cancer and you wouldn't have to be making these really tough choices that will have lifetime long lasting effects on them and their health. It sucks. I get it. Um, So making a decision on what treatment plan to go with, the best way to go about that would be pray together or sit down and just really discuss together and both of you discuss what your gut instinct is telling you. Then you have to realize that you may both have two different answers Uh, two different ideas of what the best treatment plan is. And so you would have to sit down and compromise and weigh the pros and cons. And someone, someone has to compromise. It's a tough choice and they're tough shoes to be in. And I'm sorry that you have to be in those shoes. So listen to your intuition and discuss the facts. Try to leave out the emotions. As hard as that is, you want to look at all the information as objectively as possible. And you weigh the pros and the cons. You want to trust the doctor, but verify everything that he says. 
This is what we teach parents with their children. It's like, you want to trust your child, but verify. Trust, but verify. So trust your doctor, but verify. That means if he's telling you this is the best idea, then go back to your group and say, hey, here's here's what this doctor is telling me. Uh, is this what you guys are getting told? Is this the best option? Is there a different doctor that's out there that really truly specializes in this because each doctor has their own assessment? And that's one thing that you will find is every doctor has their own idea of what the best idea is. So trust but verify, do the research, and be comfortable with the choice that you're making so you don't regret it later, saying, I wish I would have known. When you're doing the research for all of this, you may come across some really scary statistics, and you're going to have to do your best to not compare your story to others. I know how scary it is to look at the statistics that say, your child has between 40 and 70% chance of a five-year survival. When you, you can be an optimistic person and be like, oh, he's got 70% chance. This is, this is good. Or you can be more on the pessimist or a realist. You know, I consider myself a realist. You can look at those numbers and say 40%. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big gap, a big discrepancy between 40 and 70. And so not knowing whether you should be optimistic or, you know, completely stay not pessimistic but just realistic about the situation and and be sober about what's happening it's hard not to look at those numbers and get really discouraged and so my advice to you would be when you look at those numbers remind yourself these are just numbers my child is a different person he or she is their own unique person with their own uniqueness about their cancer and their body, how the body physiologically responds to chemo. And for me, there's always that element of faith, you know, um, like religious faith, having faith in a higher being and clinging to that faith to help you stay optimistic. And by all means, I say that, but realize that when we received my son's diagnosis, I was not in the best headspace. I was less than a few years out from when my brother had passed away. And I prayed and prayed and prayed for a miracle for my brother to live. Um, For those of you who don't know my story, basically, I'm going to kind of jump in and tell you that. Um, My younger brother, who was one of my, I would say one of my closest friends, one of my best friends. Uh, We were roommates throughout college. Um, Some of his high school, my early college years, I was his guardian. And um, so we lived with each other for a long time. And we both kind of came back into our faith and our church um, in the same community. And so we had, I mean, I'm talking like hundreds of people that we were mutually friends with. And so we were friends. And um, when he passed away, I basically his story was he was found unresponsive, um, which apparently meant that his heart had stopped. I had no idea that's what that meant, but his heart had stopped and it took them 24 minutes to bring his heart back and him back to quote life. But once he was brought back to life, um, sorry, it's still 
every time I talk about it, it still gets me a little, you know, emotional. So when um, they brought him back to life, I, um, I thought surely God had a miracle, a plan for him because who dies for 24 minutes and comes back to life. And he had a lot of brain damage um, from the hypoxia, from not having any oxygen during a good amount of time. And so when they brought him back to life, I thought he was, this was going to be a miracle. And I just felt it within my soul. I believed it, that it was going to be a miracle. Well, a few days later, um, fortunately he took a turn for the worse and, um, his brain stopped working altogether. And so we had to make a really tough choice of, um, taking him off life support. And so I was really confused as to why God would have my brother essentially die for 24 minutes and come back to life and then just to turn around and die a few days later. And that was really hard to process. Um, I felt so confident that God would grant that miracle, that he would get to live. But as a doctor told us one day in that hospital, he said, sometimes when we pray for a miracle, the miracle doesn't necessarily come in the way that we ask for it. Sometimes it comes in a different way where my brother was able to be an organ donor, even though we never really understood why or how he he died and the doctors couldn't explain it either. So um, I would say my faith was in a very fragile place in, in a sense. Um, I never stopped believing that God was good and I never stopped believing that God had a plan. I think what I really struggled with was understanding and accepting what that plan was um, because it was painful and, you know, just not understanding why some people get miracles and why others don't. Um, I would hear friends talk about miracles um, in their families all the time. And as much joy as that would bring to my heart, it would also bring so much sadness and sorrow because I still couldn't wrap my head around what happened and why my brother had to pass away. And so I say that and I share that because that I know there are some people who don't believe in God or in a higher being, and that's okay. Um, if that's what your belief is, you know, that's, that's your belief. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that believing in God is going to heal your child because that's not, that's not true. As much as I wish I could say, believe in Jesus and believe in God and your son will be cancer free. That's just not, that's not true. And so I cling to my faith. That's what has helped provide me strength throughout all of this. Um, but other people find different ways to find strength. When you hear the statistics of the likelihood of the survival of your child, even though your mind wants to say either one, my child is going to overcome this completely and just have that blind faith or, oh my gosh, my child has very low chances of survival. Look at your child and know that his story is unique and you don't know how that will unfold yet. And that's the scary part is not knowing how it will unfold and believing and keeping hope in your heart that your child can defy those numbers. One of the things that our child diagnosing oncologist said to us was, 
I can give you statistics, but in reality, statistics don't mean anything because either your child is 0% or 100%. And that has really stuck with me because it's true. Your child is either going to beat it 100% or your child will not. And the numbers that you see 50 to 70, that doesn't... That doesn't really describe what we're looking for. Like, what are the chances that my child is going to make it 50%? Well, you don't know if your child is going to be on on the surviving 50 or the receive your angel wings 50%. And so it's either 0% or 100%. And when you look at those numbers, it's really even more sobering. And so you really have to learn to focus on trying to stay positive and hoping for the best Plenty of miracles have happened where children who have had very little odds of making it have made it and they are the 100% and vice versa. People who had higher chances of surviving for whatever reason, they didn't make it. So all this to say, even if you do read the statistics, try not to compare your story to others because plenty of times a child has defeated the odds and cling to that bit of hope. Your child needs to be able to see that you have hope and that you are pushing through and fighting because they are fighting and they're showing up every day trying to live. Another thing is don't allow the fear to control you, but do have a healthy respect for that fear because fear can actually push you to do extraordinary things if you don't allow it to paralyze you. If you haven't gone to your first appointment, I will say here are a few of the things that I would recommend to take with you or to do at your first appointment. So first of all, I would like to recommend that you take a notebook. Take a notebook with you to all of your appointments. Write down the doctor names for every single procedure for getting the port surgically implanted. Um, the For us, it was eye doctors, the port, and all the oncologists. But just being able to keep track of the entire team of people that you're going to have throughout treatment. It's easier to familiarize yourself with their names and have their contact information uh, at your fingertip and just know when you're talking about your decisions that you have to make or what the doctors are saying that you have everybody's name and it's easier to communicate that way. So that would be one, take the notebook in. Two, I would say record on your phone for the first few appointments, especially the diagnosis appointment, record it on your phone. Not that you want to sit there and have it as a memory, um, but <laughs> what's helpful about recording that on your phone is that you can actually play it back later on that evening or in the days following the days of diagnosis because for us, our initial appointment for my son's diagnosis was literally two hours. Uh, I sat in her room for two hours hearing about all the horrible things that chemo does, which chemo plans to get my son on and the long-term side effects and having to figure out if I was going to, like if I really had much of a choice to make um, or talking about clinical trials. And it's just a lot of information on the very first day when you are literally in the worst state of mind. Like you are trying to keep it together in that appointment. You are trying not to fall apart on like on the floor in a puddle of tears. You're literally trying to hold that emotion 
and listen as much as you can because these are life saving decisions that you have to make. And sometimes you have, you actually have decisions to make between one plan or another, or what you're more comfortable with, or what if you want to be more aggressive on the treatment plan or the less aggressive plan. And so, um, recording it has helped us be able to go back and say, wait, what did they say about that? Because what I heard doesn't always jive up to what my spouse heard. And so we've had to go back and just listen to it to make sure that we understand. And if we have additional questions, we can turn around and call that doctor and, you know, ask those questions before we have to make a decision. During that appointment, your head is going to be trying to wrap around all the new terminologies and the information. So it's easy to miss what's actually being said. And you might be stuck on trying to understand a few words or just a concept and that doctor's still talking and you'd miss a big chunk of the explanation. So uh, during that appointment, you your body may go into shock and memory retention when your body is in a state of shock is severely disabled, okay? Um, it is not a, its full functioning mode. It is literally, your brain is literally in survival mode. And so retaining the information that you hear may not actually be as good as you maybe normally retain information. So record, record, record. So at the initial appointment, ideally you want to take in your spouse. I know with COVID, hospitals are being crazy strict about that second parent, which is infuriating to me, but um, apparently our hands are pretty tied on all of that. Uh, However, if you're able to bring in a person with you to your appointment, take in a person, whether it be your spouse or a partner or a friend or a parent, take an extra adult with you to be able to listen as an outsider that's not a decision-making person. So I would say just be cautious on who you take. But whatever you do, don't go alone. It's a lot of information to process and retain. And having an additional adult there definitely helps so that when you are having to understand or explain or make a decision, you are able to recall as much information as possible. Another thing about coping with the diagnosis is be gentle with yourself and take help when offered. Early on, you may not know what areas you need help with until you get out of the initial crisis of the diagnosis. It might be bills, it might be childcare. You won't really know until you've had a chance to process all the changes and the traumatic news that your child has cancer. And so accept help when offered and don't be afraid to say, you know what, I'm not really sure where I need help right now. Can I ask you in a couple of weeks or can you call me back in a couple of weeks when I've had my chance to wrap my head around all of this? Whatever you do, do not wait to talk to a social worker. I don't know, some hospitals I think automatically get you in touch with the social worker. At the original hospital, I actually had to request it. So get in touch with your social worker because your social worker will be your assigned social worker who will help you navigate through what resources are available to you through different organizations and charities locally and nationally. They'll be able to find you a place to stay if you're coming in from out of town. They will be able to direct you to free housing 
or reduced price housing or just other organizations that help with expenses. I know there was one organization that helps families that have had major financial impact. And so they financially help families that are going through cancer. So your social worker will be super valuable to you. I would definitely recommend having someone start a food train for you. um, Or just when someone asks how they can help, just requesting food gift cards for restaurants that are either in the hospital or very near the hospital or just gas gift cards or, you know, just different ways that people can contribute. I will say that the food train, we haven't really used that, but at the very beginning of the diagnosis and the very first few months, actually it was the very first few three or three months or so of treatment. It was the very first few three months or so of treatment where every time we would come home from clinic or from hospital overnight stays for chemo, my other kids that were at home who are used to seeing me at home all the time, they wanted to be with me. And my son who is in treatment for cancer, he wants mommy because mommy is the source of comfort. So I would get home and I literally would have to sit on a couch with crying babies who were all wanting to sit on my lap and be with mommy and mommy have, you know, mommy hold them. So I'd have to sit and I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to make dinner. It was almost impossible. Even if I had help come in to help distract the kids, it wouldn't work because the minute they saw me, literally it was, they want mommy and this is something so new to them. And they were just, there was a lot of that separation anxiety. And so, yeah, I would definitely say food trains where people actually deliver food to your house on the days that one, either you're out so that they feed your family, uh, or two on the days that you come home from the hospital and the days following, because it takes some time for the rest of the family to adjust to the new norm. So food trains are great, especially on hospital days or days that you come back in the days following. I will say, I don't consider myself as someone who has depression. I have grieved my brother's loss and I feel that that was within normal range. And getting the news that my child has cancer, that was devastating. Um, The whole thing is still devastating, you know, just having to see him go through what he has to go through to be healthy. And I will say that I definitely had days where it was just too much for me. And so I really struggled to even think of meal planning or what I would give my kids to to eat because I was just so tired. Like I was trying to preserve my energy for the stamina that I needed during treatment, during the weeks and just how exhausting it was. And so there were a few times that people came and brought us food and it was so, so incredibly helpful because I didn't have to think about food. I didn't have to worry about the kids not wanting to eat what I make and making seven different meals. Just kidding. It's not seven different meals. It's like three or four different meals because none of my kids want to eat the same thing. And I can't, you know, with, especially with Evan, my son being in chemo, his taste buds are off. And so now that was like that added stress of, okay, now I have picky toddler eaters. And now on top of that, it's a picky chemo toddler eater. And so 
Um, any little meal that I didn't have to worry about was definitely an extra help. I remember when I reached out to one of the first people that I knew, or I didn't even know, actually, it was the, one of the first people that I was put into contact with whose child had the same type of cancer as mine. I was a hot mess. I mean, I said, how do you do this? Like, how do you deal with the emotions? And she said to me, just one day at a time, take one day at a time. And I thought to myself, how the hell do you do that? Like, I don't know how to take it one day at a time. Like, I'm thinking about my kid's future and just, you know, what we're having to go through as a family. And it's, it's like, how am I supposed to take, how am I supposed to take one day at a time? Like, that just seems crazy, like impossible. Uh, I felt so overwhelmed and I felt like the feeling would never go away. But somehow around two months, I would say you learn that you really do take it day by day. And that literally means you're no longer planning for the future. Um, You're literally living for today and addressing the issues at hand for today. Because every day It's not like you just go to chemo and you're like, okay, he had chemo, I'm coming home and it's good, you know. During chemo, every day could be filled with so many different surprises and so many different things that you have to try and overcome, whether it be nausea or some side effect or pain, um, like neuropathy pain or sores in their mouth or what if he spikes a fever unexpectedly or then, you know, you find out that, your child's hemoglobins are low and so he needs a blood transfusion or any, you know, there's so many different things that happen during the week. So it can be very overwhelming. And so you learn truly to just take one day at a time and just to assess the day like, okay, is he good? Does he have a fever? Is he in pain? Do I need any medicine? You know, just taking it one day at a time. And you really do learn to do one day at a time. And here I am, a person who literally would plan Christmas presents (laughs) in June of that year. And I would already start kind of, you know, thinking about it before then. Here I am, you know, learning that I can't think that far in the future because I'm not promised that much far in the future. I'm only promised today. Sometimes you'll learn that you can take it day by day, but sometimes it really is taking it minute by minute. And what you're experiencing is trauma. I mean, legitimately, this is traumatic. It is trauma. And this trauma has forever impacted you and your child and your family and has completely uprooted your routine of what normal is and what your dreams were. Your child has cancer in his or her body, but you have to fight to keep cancer out of your heart and your soul. Because as much as it feels like your heart is shattering into a million pieces, you will survive this. You just take it one day at a time. Take it one minute at a time when you need to. And allow yourself to feel every single bit of emotion, as scary as that is, and as terrible as those emotions are. The only way to work through what you're going through is feeling the emotions. If you box them up, They're just going to manifest themselves through your body in a different way, whether it be tension headaches or higher blood pressure or excessive eating or not eating enough, it will manifest itself through your body. So 
allow yourself to feel the emotions and honor those emotions because those emotions are there for very valid reasons and there's no need to say I shouldn't be sad because it could be worse no you have every right to be sad even if it's not the worst case scenario this sucks it all sucks and you have every right to be sad so validate those emotions yes I have every right to be afraid yes This is so, so, so scary. I am so scared. You have every right to be sad beyond belief. You have a right to have days where it's hard to get up out of bed. You have every right to have days where you just want to sit there and numb yourself by watching Netflix over and over again or watching the newest release on on the Disney Plus channel. This is sad. This time in your life is sad and it's hard. And it is devastating. So let yourself feel those emotions. And after a while, if you find that those emotions, they're hard to control and kind of hard to get out of, or you're having a hard time like overcoming those feelings of depression or those feelings of fear, kind of give yourself, literally set yourself a timer, like 10 minutes. I will let myself feel this way for 10 minutes. And in 10 minutes, I will turn off my timer. I will take those emotions that I'm feeling. I'm going to box them up for a little bit. I'm going to put them on a shelf and I will say, I will be back to you tomorrow, or I will be back to you in four hours. But learning to kind of set those aside and allow yourself the freedom to not have those feelings all day long is also equally important. So take a deep breath. When you decide to set aside those feelings, take a deep breath and focus on the next thing that needs to be done. Your child needs you at the best that you can be. They don't need perfect, but they need whatever you have and can give to them. As scary and as sad as it is for you, it's equally as scary for them. They don't have the ability to tell their left side of the brain, which is in charge of the logic, to keep the emotions from becoming too overwhelming in the right side of the brain. Imagine that there's a bridge between the left and the right side of your brain. When the emotions get really heightened, the bridge between the two, the two, you know, spheres of the brain, basically, um, imagine that bridge becomes super wobbly to the point where nobody wants to cross it. So the logic is over there hanging off on one side of the cliff saying, hey, we got this, like, here's what's being said, here's what's done, here is what we need to do. Um, that logic, the, the side that helps control the emotion is going to have a hard time making it over to the side that does create the emotions, the extreme emotions. And so that those emotions are going to basically go out of control because there's no logic to tell it to, to simmer down and to breathe and to calm themselves. Right. And so that's what happens in the brain of a little child. Like when their emotions are out of control, they have a hard time connecting it to the logic. Sheesh. I feel like even as an adult, sometimes, especially in this walk of life, sometimes it's hard to, to see the logic when my emotions are so overwhelming. And as a parent, inevitably, we end up feeling fear, not only for ourselves, but we feel the fear for our child, if that makes sense. Like we're feeling, we imagine what our child is feeling and we essentially feel those feelings for them too. So we're not only feeling for us, we're feeling for our kids too, which is a lot because it's already enough to feel what we feel. But as a parent, I think it's 
It's inevitable. You're going to try and feel what your child is feeling. Your primary needs of security have been robbed from you. Um, If you're familiar with the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, it's a pyramid. So think of it as a pyramid. The very first level, which is on the floor, the base, on the very bottom, is the foundation to allow the rest of that structure to go up, right? So without the full solid foundation or the steadiness and wholeness of each level of the pyramid, you cannot truly reach your full potential to what Maslow calls self-actualization. So the very base of that pyramid is the physiological base, which is your needs such as air, food, shelter, water, and clothing. Then once that is full and complete, then the second level that would go on the pyramid would be safety needs. So think of financial stability, work, your health, including mental health, your child's health, which is in critical condition, and your mental health has taken a beating and will continue to take a beating even after the treatment ends. Because as a parent, and even as the child in treatment, the fear of relapse and all the side effects and realizing that you have just gone through months or years of extreme trauma, that's real. Cancer isn't just a physical battle. It's an emotional and mental battle, and it affects everyone in the family, not just the parents. So the first level of that pyramid is physiological. The second is the safety needs. The third is love and belonging. You will struggle to lay the third level of the pyramid down because the second is crumbling into into rubbles. When your financial, your health, all that is being impacted, you're literally trying to put the next level of bricks, the third level of bricks on top of the second level, which the second level is not sturdy enough. And it's like trying to stack blocks on a Jenga, right? The further up you go, the less stable it becomes. And it's just a big wobbly mess. And with the third one being love and belonging, um, that's what the third level is. The third level is love and belonging. That includes friends, family, connection with others, you know, friends want to help and they don't know how to, you don't have time or privacy to talk about it with others because you're around your children all the time and you don't really have a minute to step away and tell them all the terrible details because you're trying to protect your children from all the details, right? Um, No matter how much you explain it to your friends, they won't understand the gravity and the complexity And inevitably, you do begin to feel isolated, like nobody gets it. Nobody is living through it. Nobody understands you. Um, You may know that they love you and they want to help you. But this feeling of I'm going through something that you have no idea how horrible it is. And you can't even imagine how horrible it is. Because what you do imagine, you don't even see the webs that it connects to. You may begin to withdraw from your friends. And I wrote an entire blog on this. Um, Friends will begin to ghost you. 
and you will find the people that you expected to kind of step up and be there for you retreat. And I will dedicate an episode to this later, but there is a blog out there. So if you want to read kind of about the whole being ghosted and learning to forgive the people that ghost you or how to try and maintain some of that friendship, uh, I highly recommend that you head over to that blog on Family Chemotherapy website. So www.familychemotherapy.com and look for the one called Ghosted. So the first level of the pyramid is physiological. The second is safety needs. The third is love and belonging. The very fourth level is esteem. So your self-esteem, your strength, recognition, and self-achievement. Well, obviously these are all going to be impacted because of what you're going through. And am I strong enough? You know, I don't feel strong enough. I feel like a hot mess. I feel like I'm crying all the time. That really does affect your self-esteem. And it's, even though it's a natural response to what you're going through, it will affect your self-esteem in the sense that you feel like you should be doing better. You know, it's those woulda, shoulda, couldas that that are really terrible for mental health. And we always talk about that with our clients is stop the woulda, shoulda, coulda, because those are all expectations and they're not necessarily what you should be doing. What you should be doing is what you are doing and honoring what you are doing and doing the best that you can. And sometimes the best that you can isn't what you imagine what you should be doing, but it is good enough because it's the best that you can. That very last level... Um, so again, I'll go through this. The physiological is the first, the safety needs is the second love and belonging is the third level. Fourth level is esteem. The fifth level is considered self actualization where you achieve your full potential. As you can see from the very beginning in particular level number two, where safety needs are no longer met, you have tried to build your pyramid or your structure or your life, right? on something that is completely not steady. And so it's hard to achieve your full potential during these situations. So as you can see, the further up you try to go, the less stable it becomes. And that implies that you can't achieve your full potential until you fix the bottom layers. So in dealing with cancer with your child, it's almost impossible, at least at the beginning, to handle all of those because you're still in fight or flight mode feel like the consensus in the cancer community is that it does take a couple of months to adapt to the new norm. I'm not even going to say to accept the new norm because nobody accepts it. They just adapt to it and they plow through as best as possible. You truly learn to live one day at a time. This is really hard transition for planners like me. I am a I'm a planner. I mentioned that already. I am a planner. So it's super hard for me to live one day at a time, but I've learned to do that. You know, here I am almost, I guess, at 10 months uh, since we started treatment and I've learned to stop planning so much, even though part of me is still kind of planning because even now knowing that we have about a month and a month and a week of active treatment left, I'm already pushing my husband into trying to find what's next. Like, where can we go? Can we take a family trip? Let's do something. And and then like next year, let's plan on doing this and let's go here for the summer. So I'm a planner and I've had to learn to not necessarily plan like I've always been used to doing. I've always been one of those parents, you know, when people say, oh, stop growing. That's not me. I'm the parent who is, especially now, I'm the parent who's always been excited about 
the future. I, it excites me to see how my children are growing and seeing the people that they're becoming and trying to figure out what their interests are and seeing if that will be something that they want to do when they're older. And so looking into the future for me is exciting. And to me, you know, watching them grow is amazing. And I love seeing them become little people. And for those of us who are planners, it's a huge adjustment in the way that you think. Plan only for today and know that your plans can and probably will change. Um, So my advice would be be flexible. Expect your day to go completely different than what you have planned because you don't know if you're going to have to run to the hospital, the emergency room, or, you know, go to a doctor appointment last minute to get your child looked at. So remain flexible, even if it goes against your natural inclinations, practice it. Practice being flexible and just reminding yourself, I can plan for today, but it could go completely different. I could be in the hospital in a couple of hours for whatever reason, for a fever or infection. You may have plans and realize that your child needs a last minute hospital admission. And that would, you know, you would have to change your plans at for whatever activity you were supposed to participate in. Or you find out his counts, his or her counts aren't good for chemo. And so you have to wait another week um, before they could try again to see if your child meets counts for chemo the next week. Um, the first time I heard that we had a delay, I cried. Um, it's terrifying. You know, it's, it was so early on, we hadn't had any MRI scans. And so to us, even though we saw visible changes in Evan's appearance because his tumor was behind his eye. There was still that fear of what we couldn't see because his was also intracranial. So it was in that what they call paramenangeal. So next to the brain basically is what that means. It was next to the brain. And so knowing we couldn't see how the tumor was behaving behind the skull, um, you know, it was terrifying to be told, hey, by the way, your child doesn't meet counts. He needs to take a week off. Like, You try to be flexible, but it's still hard because you expect your child to go through the treatment without having any delays. And that also means when they have a delay that the timeline shifts. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, right, our final day is September, I don't know, like 15th. I'm going to make up a number. September 15th. And then every time he gets a delay, I've had to push that back by a week. And I get it. You know, they say, you know, your child body is just telling us that it needs a break. And I get that. But it's like, at the same time, I want this to be in the rearview mirror. I'm, I'm ready to be done with this, you know. But I will say cancer has taught me to hope for the future, um, cautiously hope for the future. Like it has taught me to hope for the future that I want a future. And I cling to that hope that we will have a future with a healthy boy, you know, with minimal side effects, as scary as that is, you know, to really allow myself to really think that like, because relapse is real and all that other stuff. Um, but it has also taught like cancer has taught me to live in the today and not to always be so ready to live in a week from now or tomorrow or a year from now that what is important is today. So the difference on how you're going to survive during this very critical time is how you train your mind to cope. Don't let fear take over and control you full time. One thing that you could do is begin a gratitude journal. Um, Every day you could write down three things that you're grateful for or verbally tell yourself three things that you're grateful for. It's a practice 
and teaching yourself to have a spirit of gratitude instead of a spirit of fear and resentment. Another helpful thing to make it through this is prayer or meditation and clinging to the smallest bit of hope. You can continue to tell yourself we can and we will overcome this. No matter what the outcome is, believe that you can and that you will. And then there's always the fake it till you make it. So even if you don't feel like it, fake it till you make it. Fake that smile long enough to give your kids hope and joy too, you know. I would recommend that you find friends in a support system online and participate in group therapy if it's available, especially with COVID. Things are kind of all up in the air and I wish they had more group therapy available, but... If your hospital has it available, I would say jump on that opportunity. You're going to need to find your village and your village may look much more different than what it used to, but find your village, people that you can trust to watch any additional children that you have, people who will bring food or help you do some house tasks because you're still in complete survival mode. You'll need people to help you house sit basically or just, you know, watch your house while you are inpatient or if you've traveled for care. Um, And on a later podcast and on a blog, I will talk about how to carefully pick your village of safe people because not all people are safe. And this is the therapist in me because I did work at the Children's Advocacy Center um, here locally. And so, you know, not all people are safe and I hate to say that because the last thing that, you know, a cancer parent needs to worry about is safe people, but it's always important to look at that just to make sure because you're leaving your kids hours upon hours at a time while your child is in chemo treatment. So sometimes you have to leave your kid for days. So picking your village safely is pretty important. So I will dedicate an entire episode for that one. The reality is that your life has changed. It's going to take some time to get used to and to adjust to it. But the intensity of the emotions that you felt on the first day when you received the diagnosis that your child has cancer, the intensity becomes less intense and you will fall into the rhythm of a new norm. Continue to remind yourself your child's story cannot be compared to anyone else's story because each child is so unique. They have that unique physical composition, unique personalities, unique way of coping physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So comparing them is like comparing an apple to a squash. You can't. You just can't do it. So don't compare. As hard as that is, when you start hearing sad stories or success stories, you cannot compare your child's story. You just have to keep hoping and taking it one day at a time with your child. So this pretty much concludes the coping with the diagnosis part two. I hope this was kind of like a, I want to say like a quick immersion, cliff notes version of everything you're really going to have to go through at the very beginning, those beginning weeks. So my hope is that, you know, these past two episodes have provided you with some food for thought, some tips, some validation in some of the things that you might be thinking or feeling. I hope that this episode was helpful and resourceful. So thank you for tuning into part two of Coping with the Diagnosis. I have some really great speakers coming up soon. If you have found this podcast helpful or you just love the mission for family chemotherapy, please kindly rate this podcast If you want to support this podcast and ministry, please consider becoming a patron. 
You can visit patreon.com forward slash family chemotherapy. You can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. Also, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest for additional resources that I do share daily. Please tag and share your friends and other pediatric cancer families that you think would benefit from any of the content from Family Chemotherapy. Thank you, and I can't wait to share the next episode. Together, we can help heal the whole family.